Spencer, we got the Tour de France coming up this coming week, which means you're probably just going to be glued to your computer, right? Because you have to cover all the stages and do all that work. So no bike riding for you. You're just going to be watching TV. Well, actually, Fred, I think I figured out a little life hack here. Got myself a Cyclops Hammer direct drive trainer. It's an indoor trainer, sets up on my bike, take the wheel out, fits really nicely. Direct drive means it's quieter. It's got this electromagnetic resistance that provides rapid response to resistance and max power. And best of all, it lets me connect with all the virtual training apps out there. I'm a big fan of Zwift, for instance. Bluetooth does it all so I can ride my way through the Tour de France in the comfort of my own home, whether it's late at night after I've been working all day on your precious website, or maybe early in the morning if I'm feeling motivated. Yeah, the Hammer Direct Drive Trainer, perfect for that type of crazy work schedule I got ahead in July. And Cyclops, right now they have the Hammer and the Magnus. They're two premier smart trainers that, like you said, work with Ruby, work with Zwift, give you the magnetic resistance that you need. And our friends at Cyclops, part of the Saris Company group based in Madison, Wisconsin. We love Saris. They're a company that gives a lot to bicycle charity. They donate over $100,000 every year to programs and bike advocacy programs across the country. So thank you to them for sponsoring this week's episode of the Velnies Podcast. All right, let's get on with the show. Uh, it's the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, and as of right now, 3 p.m. on Tuesday, Chris Froome is going to race the Tour de France. That might change tomorrow. I feel like the last 48 to 36 hours of pro cycling have been spastic at the best around Chris Froome. Uh, I am joined today by Spencer Paulison. Hello, Spencer. Hey, you know, I just call this your typical week before the tour thing. There's always a scandal. This is a good one, though. This is a real good oh one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so many takes on this scandal. Also joined today by Dan Cash, who is just hours away from boarding a flight to go into the Froome melee the over Ma, in France. Yeah. beast. I'm parachuting oh, in. Yeah, it's going to be... Oh, man. There's going to be so many... Uh, pushy journalists at the sky bus over the next few uh, days. Dane, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm ready to get into the fray. I can't wait. It, it's going to be a fray. Um, every year we seem to have some type of weird story break on the eve of the Tour de France. Last year it was the EPO positive around Andre Cardoso. In years past, there have been things like Operation Puerto. There have been... Uh, Lars Bohm. Lars Bohm. People kicked out. And 2018 did not disappoint because unless you've been living under a rock, you're probably familiar with what happened over the last few days. On Sunday, we woke up to news that Christian Prudhomme, the director of the Tour de France and ASO, had decided to kick Chris Froome out of the Tour de France. Uh, basically said, nope, sorry, you have this ongoing investigation around the adverse analytical for salbutamol. We've talked about it a million times on this podcast, going back all the way to December. And he said, nah, non. And I think from what I can tell, he had actually sent a letter to Team Sky a little bit earlier, maybe a few weeks prior, letting them know as much. And it sort of leaked out. And of course, timing is delightful to have this happen the week before the tour, isn't it? And this is not completely out of left field. ASO over the years has tried to act as its own de facto governing body. I think we all remember a decade ago when ASO booted Team Astana from the Tour de France. Team of the defending champion at the time, Alberto Contador. Yeah. Yeah, so sidebar here, uh, the, the eight-year tours are always the crazy tours because yeah. we have this, 2018, this is yeah. happening. 2008, like you just said, Astana left out of the tour, defending champ Alberto Contador, couldn't race. And then, did you guys remember what happened in 1998? Mm. I feel like I something kind of meaningful happened there. Big year. Lebowski came out in 1998. Oh, yeah, great movie, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, we just, we also just. Also Festina. The Festina affair. That was also on an eight year. So watch out for those eight years. It's not a lucky number. Not auspicious out. number. Not at all. So we uh, we woke up on Sunday and we're like, okay, I guess Chris Froome is out, assuming that, Ski, that Sky was going to challenge this. Um, so ASO was going rogue here. They were not operating under UCI guidelines. They were basically just saying, we're taking matters into our own hands. God love the French. Yeah. And this lasted all of what 20 hours 
18 like hours? Yeah, less than 24. It was long enough for a, a, a bunch of poor European journos to write columns about it. I saw a number of columns come out Monday about how unfair and how bad this was. And all those columns were rendered completely useless because, Dane, what happened on Monday? Well, on Monday, the UCI came down and said, oh, you know, we're just going to close this whole case. Done. Case closed. Froome is cleared. He's clear to go, ready to race the Tour de France. Let's get back to business and focus on the racing, guys. Enjoy the racing, everyone. Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy your Tour de France, everyone. Yeah, you know, throughout <laughs> this entire process, I've been thinking, like, what is going to be the solution to the Chris Froome adverse analytical that pisses off the fewest amount of people? And you know what? I think that the cycling's governing bodies found the one to piss off the most amount of people. Yeah. Like this this solution, the last few events, made literally every single person upset. All the Nigels and the Gareths in Great oh, Britain. It was really quite a stir. They were pissed off by ASO. And then all of the, you know, American fans who literally light us up on Twitter every single day, they were totally pissed off when the UCI decided to roll over and allow Chris Froome to race. So... Like Dane said, the UCI said that it had concluded its case, that it had um, gotten guidance. It, it kind of passed the buck, I got to say. The UCI passed oh, yeah, the buck to totally. WADA and said it received guidance from the World Anti-Doping Agency, basically telling them that this case no longer had any legs, why it took this long until literally the week before the Tour de France to figure out, I don't know. And so they dropped the case, and then ASO, Christian Proven Home, said, oh, well, if the case is dropped, then we have no basis for our trying to kick him out, and everything went back to the way it was. And it was like, it was like the ending of a bad science fiction movie where there's like a lot of hand waving like a deus ex machina to set that yeah. situation yeah. And, and like all the people that died or things that had been done that were bad all of a sudden come back to life it was like superman when he flies around the world and makes the world go around backwards turns back time Ooh. yep dane's shaking his hand he, he, or the he lost finale I'm, I'm thinking of yeah yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. totally yeah. Lost it's just like oogie booga 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 yeah. just kidding yeah. smoke fine. monster yeah. stupid smoke monster Hey, here's a crazy take on why it took Wada so long to figure this out. You know how they maybe communicate within the office? Maybe it's exactly like that old Budweiser commercial, except when they call each other up on the phone, they just go, Wada. I like that. Yeah. And then it takes yeah. forever because everyone has to do that mm -hmm. when it goes mm -hmm. around the horn and it goes and goes and goes. And they finally figure out that the, uh, the analytical thing is not going to be... <laughs> Spicy. Sad clap. Honey. <laughs> yeah, really good take. Um, so... The root of this decision, we can trace back to the World Anti-Doping Agency, who took the lead here. And basically what happened was WADA released a statement in concurrence with the UCI that, um, that said it was going to be impossible to perform the necessary tests on Chris Froome to determine whether or not his adverse analytical for salbutamol was indeed good or not. So... If you've been listening to this podcast, reading this site, you're probably familiar with what happened. Stage 18, Welta Espana, Chris Froome returns an adverse analytical. It's kept hidden and then leaked to the public. And then it's revealed that he tested twice the allowable limit of salbutamol, which is an inhaler used by asthmatics. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not it's performance enhancing or not. There's been a lot of dancing around about whether or not he actually did have twice the allowable limit, whether dehydration could have been it. We were told that Chris Froome was going to have to undergo this thing called the pharmacokinetic study, where he was going to have to recreate the physical situation in which his body excreted this reading of salbutamol. <laughs> excreted. And then at the end of the day, Wada basically said, um, here's the thing, guys, clarification. Uh, first of all, uh, based on the number of factors that are specific to the case of Mr. Froome, including in particular a significant increase in dose over a short period of time of the doping control in connection with the documented illness, as well as demonstrated within subject variability excretion of salbutamol, WADA concluded that the sample result was not inconsistent with the ingestion of salbutamol within the per permitted maximum dose. Not inconsistent. I love it, the double negatives. Basically, yeah. they concluded that, like, well, maybe he was taking the allowable dose. Maybe. Okay. Very helpful. Thanks. Uh, the next thing WADA concluded was that uh, 
having him go through this pharmacokinetic study, this supposed test where we were imagining Chris Froome having to ride for lab three weeks. Lab rat situation, like yeah. a lab rat situation. I like that, yeah. Uh, basically, it's, it would not have been possible to adequately recreate the unique circumstances that preceded his doping test. Which, yeah, because Contador retired, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true. <laughs> which, you know, I, that was good. that was a big question I had throughout this entire thing of like, how do you recreate a Grand Tour? I mean, stage 18, he was pretty far into it. Like, how do you create 17 days of Grand Tour racing and salbutamol used to try and then get it on a trainer, have a lab technician, you know, take a blood sample and be able to say whether or not you were within this allowable limit? I don't know. So they just didn't do this. Apparently time. they don't know either. So they just didn't do it then. I think it kind of sounds to me like they punted or like there was like the big project for like the big project for homeroom was due and yeah. they hadn't worked on it at all. And they were just like, oh man, like, I guess, you know, it's just like, I'm, I guess I'm going to switch this class to pass, no pass instead of uh, getting a, getting a letter grade. And what, and what they maybe deserve a D here, but Hey, it's passing. It's not an F. So, uh, okay. Passing grade. All right. Uh, finally, the, uh, another thing they have listed here is that, um, they basically think that the, the dose he was taking was a permissible dose. So we had a lot of backtracking from WADA here on just some of the information that we had gotten up to this point. And, um, you know, I get it. I kind of do understand it. Um, why they're doing this. Yeah, it's kind of be impossible to do a pharmacokinetic study. Yeah, the more and more we looked at the wishy-washy science around the excretion of salbutamol from a guy who was super dehydrated and taking a lot of salbutamol, maybe we're going to determine that it wasn't that big a deal. You know, a lot of the things that we've been talking about up to this point as it is. But guys, we got to talk about the messaging here because um, a question I have for you is, how would you have reacted to this news had WADA and the UCI put out this statement on just sort of a random Wednesday in early June. Like, let's say it's early June and WADA comes down. They're like, you know, we've just, we've spent a lot of brain power on this Froome thing. And like, we just don't think it's, we can tell one way or the other. We, we certainly can't tell to a level to like ban this guy. What, what would your reaction have been? Yeah, I mean, I, I, having read some of these things that you just kind of read out, I, I kind of feel the same way as you do. You know, I guess that kind of makes sense. And if it had come down at a different time, I think people might have reacted with a little bit more um, rationality. <laughs> they might have read these things and said, okay, you know, that kind of makes sense. And I think there would still be anger. But I think uh, the fact that it's the week before the tour just changes everything. Here's another question. What would be your reaction if they had written this sort of report or whatever about another rider that maybe was less prominent or well, rider you didn't you didn't think was as much of a suspicious suspicious rider perhaps oh uh what if this had been yempy drucker mm. right and nobody would care yeah but so. first of all it's Froome. but then second of all this comes down a week before the tour but i have to say the big thing to me that makes this um just a really frustrating situation. And, you know, if you're a cycling fan and this whole ordeal has you frustrated, you are well within your right to be frustrated. Because to me, what makes this worthy of being frustrated is that it comes down the day after ASO tries to kick him out of the tour. I mean, like having these two things happen back to back, these two, you know, really seismic movements in the Froome case and in cycling in general to create this bipolar type of situation in which you're like, oh, he's out, oh, he's in. And then to have the explanation be kind of wishy-washy to me is why this is just a really frustrating situation. Barring the fact that it's completely opaque and we have no idea what's going on. It, it's just sort of the fact that it seems like all the governing bodies waited, you know, crammed for the test and waited for the last possible minute and then had this very violent um, release of information. That's what yeah. did it. And in the eternal words of the Backstreet Boys, quit playing games with my heart, you know? <laughs> I a, mean, and it, this goes back to a kind of a long-running feud between ASO and UCI, and it sort of simmers beneath the surface. We never quite always see what's happening with it, but there have been times when the ASO has threatened to pull its race out of the world tour. And then, you know, these, these other uh, instances that we've mentioned earlier in the show, like with uh, the tour leaving Alberto Contador out and UCI kind of 
questioning those types of decisions in terms of, you know, ASO basically wants to have their independence. They want to run the race entirely the way that they see fit, and they don't want the UCI getting involved with it and and meddling with what they do with the Tour de France because they know they're the biggest race on the block. There's no other race that compares in terms of Tour de France's power and influence. And furthermore, ASO, you know, they also run the Vuelta a España. So they've got two of the big Grand Tours on the calendar in their ownership and then as well as a number of other races. So it's a power play in some ways behind the scenes. Yeah, it's a really good reminder, I think, that, that, I mean, not that, not that, uh, the major leagues or the NFL are perfect by a long shot, but they have much more consolidated uh, governing bodies. It's it's one governing body that makes these decisions, whereas in cycling, as you saw, and as you pointed out, you have a huge thing coming down on Sunday, a, a seismic shift, and then a seismic shift coming down from another stakeholder the very next day. That just isn't doesn't sound like something that would happen with, yeah, most major sports here in the U.S. Well, and then... These two uh, big announcements are used to, to to basically close something that we have been the cycling fans have been thinking about and pouring over and having discussions about and really thinking about since the beginning of the year. You know, this is six months worth of hashing it out. I mean, we said this back in December. This is the story of 2018. Fellow News will be covering this story. This is, you know, this big story and. For a story that has that much weight to be resolved with this sort of, uh, yeah, you know, spastic 48 hours, I feel like just, I don't know, it, I can understand, like I said, why people would be frustrated. And not a whole lot of information, really, coming down from UCI and WADA either. I mean, it's not like they released a, a big explainer for what was going on. And, of course, obviously, you know, technically they were never really going to release this information in the first place because this is this particular drug, this particular instance. The reason we know about it, it's a leak. It's not like this is an EPO uh, finding. This is for something that has a very specific process. So yes, on the one hand, they were never really obligated to give us this information. But at the, you know, at the same time, this sport needs more transparency. And the fact that this decision kind of comes down with, with so little info. I mean, there was a WADA doctor kind of came out and went on the record uh, with some information, but there's just been so little expl- explanation for all of this that I think that further frustrates a lot of people. Well, and that's something that we can't, we saw out of WADA today with a statement basically saying that, hey, you know, these types of, this is not a unique situation. Basically saying we actually have situations like this with salbutamol and other drugs that are allowable limit, allowable excretion type drugs. We have these all the time. And so the fact that it was leaked is what made it a big deal, not the fact that, you know, yeah, he had this um, this high reading. So Chris Froome, well, first of all, Sky put out a statement today saying they're not going to talk about it. So yeah, good luck with that, guys. Good, <laughs> good luck. Good luck not talking about that. But then Chris Froome went to the Times of London and gave an interview and talked more about this. And he, you know, th- th- this is all according to Chris Froome, but he shared his his thoughts and gave some clarity from, from his perspective on it. And one of the things he said was that actually he was given some leeway by WADA with his reading. So up to this point, we've been, you know, we've, we've, continually repeated the double the allowable limit. You know, he had 2,000 parts per whatever versus the allowable limit, which was 1,000. Well, according to Chris Froome, so that's not entirely true because you're given a 10% sort of wiggle room grace period. And then WADA um, was allowed to sort of adjust for dehydration, which gave him more wiggle room in terms of where the allowable limit could be. And at the end of the day, he said that the he was only 20% over the allowable limit. I guess that's still over the allowable limit, but it's not double. This is like when you get a rental car and the rate looks like super cheap on uh, whatever, Expedia or something, but then all the taxes add up really fast. And then you're like, holy crap, this is like $200 a day. What the heck happened? The classic inaccuracy from the start of my result was of my result being double the limit when it was less than 20% over with the figured figure corrected, Froome told the Times. So when you grading on a curve, I guess, mm. uh, yeah, it goes down that, a little bit. That jives with our analogy of uh, WADA and UCI cramming for the test at the 11th hour. Yeah. So we're going to have Chris Froome at the Tour de France. And we've had a lot of chatter online today about whether or not that's a good thing. But I think the most intriguing chatter online 
has been about whether or not it even matters because Mr. Dan Cash over here threw down a face-melting nuclear hot stove take. Nuclear. Nuclear take into the ether, basically saying, eh, adverse analytical or not, Chris Froome ain't winning the tour. Yeah, come in with the, come in with the fastball. So, Dane, take me through your take. Why don't you think Chris Froome can win that Tour de France? Well, first off, just to kind of go back to whether I think it's goodies there, I think I think it is going to be goodies there because that means that when Naira Quintana or Richie Port win, nobody's going to say, oh, well, Chris Froome wasn't there. Not, yeah, not an asterisk tour. There was not going to be an asterisk because yeah. he's, you know, the, one of those two guys or maybe Roman Bardet, whoever it is, I think is going is to overcome the challenge. My, my, my take, my fiery take, Fred, is built on a number of factors here. I mean, the, the biggest factor simply is that the Giro Tour double is kind of impossible. I think it's just too hard, and and I think there's a reason that it hasn't been done in 20 years. The last guy that did it, Marco Pantani, I mean, a legendary talent with some legendary things flowing through his veins at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look back, you you won't even find a rider that rode the Giro and then went on to win the Tour that same year, let alone winning the Giro. It's just that hard. So that's the big the big challenge. I mean, it's it's 3,500 kilometers of, of racing in May before you even do the Tour. I don't know. I think that's too much, and... I think the field is really strong this year. I think last year's field, Nairo Quintana torpedoed his own chances because he tried the Giro Tour double, and he has learned maybe not to do that anymore. Richie Porte took himself out of the race. Uh, Roman Bardet looks like he gets better every year. Vincenzo Nibli's in the picture. Mikel Landa was not a rival for Froome last year because he was a teammate. And you got all these guys who are in the field. And uh, I'm not going to say I think any one of those riders is necessarily a uh, you know better favorite than Froome. I just think that combined, the field, it's got a better chance than Chris Froome of, of uh, you know, swimming against the current and actually winning the Giro Tour double for the first time in 20 years. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Spencer, is this a garbage take? Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's a garbage take. It's very thoughtful, oh, as thanks, we've Spencer. come to expect from Dane. Oh. Um, but I think, uh, I don't think that's right, though. I mean, come on, it's Chris Froome. He's... Of everyone in this peloton, he's the one who knows the Tour de France inside and out. He knows how to win it. You know, the only other guy in this list of favorites who's won the Tour before is Vincenzo Nibali. I mean, is he really going to show up? I don't know. He has had precious few results so far this season. And as for the rest of the riders who potentially could be favorites, I think they're all pretty flawed. And I think Team Sky really is particularly strong this year. I mean, you know, Garen Thomas has been riding out of his skin Michal Kwiatkowski, as always, very strong. Wout Poles also been showing great form as we're coming into the tour. I feel like this is probably one of the best teams that Team Sky has put together for the tour. Furthermore, you know, these smaller teams that they've got in Grand Tours right now, I feel like that gives the other guys a little less wiggle room where, you know, a team that maybe is not as talented, AG2R, for instance, they don't have as many riders to fall back on if a few of their guys have trouble, whereas Team Sky is just all hitters. They're just all going to do it. Yeah, I mean, look at this murderer's row of climbing domestique. So it's Garrett Thomas. He's probably going to be setting the pace early on these climbs, just crushing people. Who He could be the team leader. Uh, <laughs> Wout Poles, no. two years ago, while polls, holy cow. I mean, mm-hmm. he was like, he was the domestique who was like there with all the hitters at the end. Um, Mikhail Kwiatkowski, he'll probably be the second guy. I mean, he was just riding out of his skin last year at the Tour de France, super strong. And then Egan Bernal, Egan Bernal yeah. your favorite, Dane's favorite young rider. EAB. I, he annihilated everyone at the Tour of California. Yeah. We, I mean, I know that's not the Tour de France, but like, talk about climbing talent. Holy cow. Yeah. They got a really strong team. I mean, I'm not going to deny that team is super strong. For me, the thing is, most of those guys didn't race the Giro. Yeah. The team leader did. You can't drag, I don't think you can drag Chris Froome to a win. I think you can seal the deal. Yeah, it depends on the TV cameras rolling or not. That's fair it's enough. Just... I think the cyclists can maybe not drag him to a win. But I think, uh, yeah, they can seal the deal if he gets the lead in the time trial or on a climb. But if he's not himself, you know, attacking the peloton or doing the time trial better than Richie Porte. I don't know that they can do it. But remember, there's the team time trial, and then also there's the Roubaix stage. And in both of those cases, having a really strong team is essential. Oh, and they have Gianni Mascon. So, hey, watch out. Get out of the way. You know, that Roubaix stage. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, big guy coming through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, guys, there's going to be so much intrigue around Team Sky and Chris Froome heading into the Tour de France. Uh, I say we give a call to our favorite Spanish-American journalist, Andrew Hood, who's en route to uh, the Grand Depart right now. I think he has pulled over on the side of the freeway somewhere in France. Buffalo Grill, probably. Buffalo Grill. Let's give him a ring and uh, get his takes 
on Froom and Sky and what we can expect. Okay, Colin Hoodie. Okay, we are now joined by our European correspondent, Andrew Hood. Andy, you've been driving across Spain and France for the last few hours trying to get to the start line for the Grand Depart. First of all, where are you right now, and did you have to eat at the Buffalo Grill? (laughs) You know, I was actually doing a Google search for a Buffalo Grill because I was arriving late. Uh, I'm on the outskirts of uh, Bordeaux, you know, logic would say, Hey, hoodie, go downtown to Bordeaux, stay in the romantic city center. But, uh, if you've got a car and you're on a time schedule, there's no time for that on the outskirts. It's like, it could be suburban, uh, Wichita, Kansas for all I know right now, just in a suburban park in a, uh, Campanile strolled into the restaurant at 10 06, got the trade désolé, c'est fermé combination. Mm. Sorry, we're closed. You know, six six minutes after the closing time, but they took pity on me and gave me a nice uh, access to the salad bar and a uh, nice carafe of uh, local wine. So it was uh, a nice introduction, nice segue into the tour. You avoided getting Franced on your first night in France. Congratulations to you, Hoodie. My first question for you is: You probably awoke like all of us on Sunday morning, think it was thinking it was going to be just a nice mellow Sunday before the Tour de France started, and you were greeted by the first bombshell news that ASO had decided to kick Chris Froome out of the tour. What was your reaction? And as someone who's covered this sport for the last twenty years, what did it remind you of? My first reaction was surprised that uh, ASO would make this play. Uh, in the context of 20 years, it was kind of deja vu all over again, to borrow a line from uh, Yogi Berra. Just kind of going down this road before, this is a repeat of the same story we've seen from Puerto, from Festina. You know, is it the same story? That's the bigger question. I think a lot's changed, but maybe nothing's changed at all. And I think that's what really is the crux of this whole context and this whole uh, view going into this year's Tour de France. It seems like the sports changed, but a lot of things haven't. So I think people are struggling with that all across the Peloton. So then fast forward 20 hours later, when then another bombshell hits that the UCI, uh, due to WADA, has decided to drop its case against Chris Froome. What reaction did you have to this second bombshell? And is there anything over the last 20 years that that reminded you of? Well, it was, uh, you know, is there a correlation, a connection between what happened Sunday and Monday? It sounds like there was. Um, You know, in a certain way, I suppose it's good that this is resolved just in time before the uh, start line of the Tour de France. You know, this case was so confusing to so so many different layers. Um, I think people had a hard time separating the view of what is the Froome case and trying to separate that from the larger uh, image and uh, context we have of uh, the impressions of Team Sky. I think people are looking at Team Sky. Like it's a repeat of that same story. It's another U.S. Postal. They're, they're, they're doing bad things. And I think people cannot separate that perception that they have, that impression they have of Team Sky, whether that's true or false, and really look at the Froome case independently. I think that's that's kind of the hard part for, I think, a lot of people is to try to just see – the, the nitty-gritty details of the Froome case. And, you know, it, it, it revealed so much about what cycling is. There's like, uh, for a long time, there was the the uh, Peloton at Dupitesse, the kind of two-speed Peloton. And now I think a lot of times people are wondering if there's a justice at Dupitesse. You know, if, if you're a wealthy, rich, influential athlete, do you get a better treatment in the so-called sports judicial system than you would if you're just a poor little guy from a Cat 2 team? Well, and that's something that we didn't talk about before, but you know, the fact that Team Sky brought its resources to bear on a legal t- team to try and help Chris Froome out here. And you know, when we look at the other riders who have been sanctioned for Salbutamol, guys like Diego Ulissi, Alessandro Pitaki, and you know, those sanctions were a little different. It happened when Salbutamol was a banned substance as opposed to or a substance that you needed TUE for as opposed to something that, you know, was this excretion specified this specified substance. Yeah. But still, you know, those guys got steamrolled by the system. And 
you know, you can look at this situation and very easily say to yourself, you know, biggest team, biggest budget, biggest legal budget. They probably brought some uh, A-game lawyers to bear on the UCI and WADA. Like Jerry Maguire. Yeah. And one thing that happens in these doping cases is that, oh boy, the anti-doping authorities, when they see the potential for a long, expensive, drawn-out battle... And the reporting that I've done in the past, they they start wanting to make deals. And I wonder if something like this was a result of them, I don't know, looking at the opaque nature of the case, the legal team they were going up against and saying to themselves, ooh, this could get really pricey. Very Team Sky tactic, really. You just grind them down. You just use your endurance and all your manpower to just waste them away until... They've got nothing left to fight. Who's the Gianni Moscone of the Team Sky legal team? All of them. All of them. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> so, Eddie, I mean, you're on your way to the tour. What do you think the uh, media scrum and the uh, ambiance is going to be like at the tour when everyone uh, arrives? I mean, are people going to be talking about, you know, who's going to win in the sporting elements? Or is this just going to be conversations about Froome and WADA and due process? I think it's going to be a very interesting – I mean, tomorrow Team Sky has its uh, pre-tour press conference tomorrow afternoon at the Team Hotel. And I think it's going to be quite an interesting uh, confrontation between, say, the team and the media because for a long time, Team Sky was saying, well, when we have the opportunity to talk about this, we'll tell our side of the story. So I'm real curious to see what their play is going to be tomorrow when the journalists start asking – on the behalf of really everyone in the Peloton, it's like, okay, let's get the real story on what happened with this case, Chris. And I can just imagine they'll say something like, well, you know, the decision's been made. We're here to race our bikes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because this case really reveals that I think there's, it's just crying out for more transparency. Yesterday, we got two press releases, one from the UCI, one from WADA, and another one from Team Sky. And what struck me was just really the lack of detail in those in those comments that came out everyone you know there was some detail in there though but it wasn't really enough i think to to really satisfy a lot of people with this case because it's such a high profile case so important to really the credibility of the whole peloton as well as the credibility of the anti-doping process and you know tomorrow will team sky and chris Froome be open and transparent or will they just kind of hide behind uh, you know, the argument this whole past nine months? It's like, oh, we'll talk about it when, when the case is clear. So that's going to be a, a big takeaway for me tomorrow. Yeah, it's almost like you want the Gabe Sherman Vanity Fair behind-the-scenes magazine piece about this or like the New York Times investigative TikTok when all of those stories rely on people within an organization being willing to open up and talk about what happened. You know, you can't piece together a story like that unless you do have access. And Team Sky and the UCI, to a certain degree, have shown that they're not particularly interested in giving up access. So uh, I'm with you, Hoodie. I'm, I'm really wanting that, that TikTok story from Chris Froome where he lays out exactly what happened, how he felt, and, um, you know, how the course of events came down. But I'm not going to hold my breath for it. Doesn't seem like there's any incentive for them to do it now. Yeah. They're, they're in the clear. Like, what are they, why, they have no reason to do it apart from public relations. Yeah, I mean, from a public relations standpoint, you could say that to quiet all those uh, hardcore American fans who like to liken <laughs> them to postal on our Twitter feed every single day. But you know what? That's a pretty small percentage of their fan base. There's a lot more Nigels and uh, Gareths out there who are who are cheerleading. And particularly for the tour. I mean, the Tour de France, we, yeah, we, we watch the sport. We, we watch Shawl Sells and all those smaller races. But the Tour de France, I mean, where this is relevant right now is a race that there's a lot of casual fans. And they're going to see Chris Froome cleared. And that's enough for, for I think, uh, millions of people out there. And I think Sky, maybe they don't really care all that much about placating that small percentage of people who also are going to watch the races before and after the Tour de France. So we've been out there seeking perspective from uh, outside the Vela News editorial team as well. Uh, Dane, you were on the phone earlier today with Jonathan Vodders, team boss for Team EF Education First, powered by Draypack, presented by Cannondale, Slipstream, Garmin, Sharp, Transitions, <laughs> that team. Uh, what, what did Vodders have to say? Vardis had a couple of different things to say. I mean, he had a, a pretty nuanced take on it. And, you know, Vardis is great because he'll, he's not afraid to speak his mind. And, uh, you know, on Twitter, 
on Sunday when the first bombshell news came down. Vardas had a lot of things to say about the ASO and all that stuff. Uh, and then 24 hours later, like everybody's, some of his points were rendered moot because the new news comes down. And so a couple of things came out of that conversation and a couple of things stuck with me after that. I mean, he had a kind of twofold look, at, uh, a two-sided look at the the public relations view of all this. And on the one hand, he was sort of pointing out that, yeah, it's kind of a shame that uh, people really rush to judgment on this one, uh, no, ma- no matter whether no matter where the guilt is or whether whether this writer is or isn't doing something that he shouldn't be doing. It did really seem like people jumped to judgment on this. And there is a process and there's a reason for a process. And, and uh, you know, he, he sort of referenced the the old adage, uh, you know, we we. We set up the system so that uh, 10, 10 guilty men might go free to protect one innocent person. And, you know, he had that kind of view of the whole situation. At the same time, he also definitely uh, he uh, understood it was sympathetic to uh, a lot of people distrusting Sky because of the way Sky has handled all of this. And, and the last really the last year and a half with Jiffy Gate, uh, Dr. Freeman, just one scandal after another that Sky has had. And, and you know, Vaughters' take, which I can totally agree with, is that. Yeah, you you might sort of feel for Froomer Sky that people jump to these conclusions, but on the other hand, they kind of brought it on themselves, and uh, I think that's a pretty solid take on that on that front. And then on the other, the other big thing that that he had to say was simply that really, as much as we might want it to be, uh, anti-doping testing is not black and white. This drug in particular uh, has has a lot of different factors. You know, you're not allowed to take a certain amount of it. But how do you test that? You test it with an excretion test, and excretion and, and intake are two very different things. Uh, so yeah, Vaughters was was uh, very, yeah. I mean, he he made the point that that this is not black and white, and there's so many factors that go into this test. And of course, that is kind of true for anti doping generally. And it's you know that that's that's saying a lot because that's very important to our sport. Uh, and and I, he didn't really have a solution for for that, and and especially for the fact that it seems like in this case, uh, the rider with the resources. Was, was the one who was able to kind of finally make this point. And there are riders probably who have not had those resources. And it's a shame for those people, if, if they were innocent, uh, that they weren't able to fight this. But, yeah, that's just a reality of anti-doping. It's not so black and white was, was his big takeaway there. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm working on a story right now about one of those riders without the resources to really challenge their anti-doping case. And it's true. Um, even in some of the really tried and true doping tests out there, this one I'm working on is about the EPO urine test. Um, there are schools of thought. There's gray area. There's reading the tea leaves that come back from the results. And there's science that doesn't give you a green light or a red light. A lot of times there's stuff that's kind of in the middle ground. You know, sometimes it's very obvious, but there's other times when um, medical factors and scientific factors create a situation in which the do- the drug testers have to make have to make the call based off of like okay, is this splotch totally dark or totally white or somewhere in between? And where is the threshold? And, you know, to me, it's sort of like we it's it's magic. You know, we don't understand it, the layperson, and we want it to be perfect. We want the anti-doping movement to be able to give us these um, assertions one way or the other. Um, and we want to have organizations like WADA, USADA that are staffed and are have enough resources to be able to do that. But yeah, the reality of the situation is that it's anything. But I think the challenge here, like Vader said, is that the other reality situation is that we'd like our anti-doping officials to be transparent and to be truthful. But that opens them up, I think, to you know uh, being um, contested in court, and so they have to be a bit um, opaque. Um, Hoodie, you uh, got on the phone with Ross Tucker who uh, operates science and sport and is, has been a longtime expert around the anti-doping movement. Sounds like Ross has some hot takes of his own. I think he was a little upset at the ruling here. What, uh, what's, what's the perspective of Mr. Tucker? We had a very interesting conversation yesterday. He, he immediately was on Twitter yesterday uh, putting his thoughts out there in the public arena. So I, I thought I'd just give him a call and uh, we hooked up on the phone and it, it, It was kind of a sprawling conversation about the legitimacy of the anti-doping movement, what this kind of meant to the larger questions of is it is the is the is the so-called policing of of the anti-doping system and and the judicial side of things in the sense of how effective are the tests and how fair is the is the lotting out of, of justice in terms of bans and sanctions and whatnot. And he basically was saying that 
both are largely ineffective, saying that uh, in terms of a lot of different factors, in terms of budget, science, um, the frequency of testing, and all kinds of reasons, that it's very unlikely that a cheater will get caught. And then on the other side, in terms of getting banned, it's even a, a smaller percentage. So when you add up all those variables, it comes down to a small percentage of people that might actually be abusing and cheating the system and will ever have any chance of actually getting caught and later banned. So he, he was saying one of his takeaways was the only real effective way right now of kind of busting up these uh, uh, cheating and doping rings and whatnot is the whistleblower. The whistleblower is is what kind of caught up U.S. Postal and Lance Armstrong. We've seen leaks. That's kind of what led everyone to the Jiffy Bag and to the Wiggins case. And that's really – and even the leak with the Chris Froome, that's where a lot of the real juicy stuff actually has come out. And, of course, even larger uh, uh, in terms of sporting scandals with Russia and other cases beyond cycling. Um, but he, he, he viewed kind of the decision of WADA to backpedal on this as a real kind of backward step in the anti-doping movement. He thought that uh, water really retreated on this case because they saw exactly what you guys were saying, a lot of powerful interest lining up against them. And the truth is, as you were saying, Fred, you know, water and the UCI, you know, water's budget, I think is 30 million a year and their legal department's even smaller than that. And Team Sky had some heavy hitters and Chris Froome. I'm not quite, you know, it's not quite confirmed yet, actually, who actually is paying for all this stuff. I can never get a straight answer out of Team Sky on that. If it's Team Sky or if it's Chris Froome paying for it himself. But anyway, they had the best lawyers in, in, the, in the sport lining up against WADA and WADA blinked. Yeah, I always get a little um, disappointed um, when – Ruling, rulings like this do come down to the anti-doping movement because it does show it, – it defangs them, you know. I mean as much as, – as many problems as I did have with the Chris Froome adverse analytical case and, you know, wondering about the science and thinking, well, okay, this was this drug that he was taking because he was sick. Is this really doping, you know. Um, I do feel that this is a case that really highlights that you can you can challenge the system and win. And we saw that. Um, we, we've seen numerous examples of this. Uh, most notably with the um, Russian Olympic team and, you know, just report after report of just totally just over the line doping going on, systematic team-wide doping going on by the Russian team and them coming up with the wishy-washiest way to like sanction them. Um, we've seen challenges to the biological passport um, be successful. And, you know, it's one of those things where, if you you got if you have rules, you got to be able to enforce them. And a situation like this shows us that if you pose a pretty serious challenge to those rules, you can uh, you can overcome it. So that's where we leave it. Chris Froome is going to race the Tour de France. Journalists are going to be crazy. Uh, Hoodie, how do you think the typical French fan is going to take this? How are the frogs? How are, the, how are our Frenchies going to uh, take it for you know for Froome lining up there in a couple of days? Yeah, that, I think there'll be a lot of attention put on that in terms of uh, you know there's one or two people booing Froome. Uh, the media will pick up on that. I know last year in Marseille, he was certainly getting booed. Uh, after the time trial, when he took on the uh, under the, the green jersey, yellow jersey, and we'll see how the fans react. I mean, the French, you know, they can get quite emotional. You have Bernard, you know, kind of kick up a storm the last week or so. Um, all this certainly does not help from even though you know one guy in a crowd can make a lot of noise, and I think most people uh, are generally respectful of the racers, but. It can it can get more wild and out of control at, at the Tour de France. We saw the Giro. I think he, he received a pretty warm welcome at the Giro because he, he hadn't raced the Giro since 2010 or whatever it was. And uh, But, I mean, the French could be riled up. We'll have to see. That's going to be very interesting to see even just at the uh, team presentation on Friday. Well, Spencer, as we both know, all it takes is one pea thrower to ruin a race. Indeed. So, hey, French listeners out there, don't yeah. throw pee at Chris yeah. Froome. Keep it in your pants. Yeah, boo him, well, jeer him. Nope, throw him pee. Your pants. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. true. Oh, Maybe find a bush. Just a thought. Yeah. Find a bush. Yeah. They, they like yeah. public urination over there. Well, Hoodie, it is past midnight. You've had your salad bar. You've done your big drive. We appreciate you making time for the podcast. The next time we check in with you, you and Dane will be at the Tour de France. So we'll let you get out of here. Go get some rest.
Au revoir. Au revoir. See you soon, Hoodie. Once well. Uh, okay, well, thanks to Andrew Hood for joining us. Guys, before we get out of here this week, let's do some off the front, off the back. We had all of these national championship road races, time trials, criteriums go on across the United States, Canada, and Europe this past week. So do we have any off the front, off the back performances from these races that we want to call out? I see people feverishly looking at their computers. So I will start. My off the front, I'm going to give to Mr. Jungle Bob, Bob Jungles, because he completely destroyed the Luxembourg National Time Trial Championship, going on a 40-mile breakaway, 40-kilometer breakaway. And according to some report I saw, he won by like 13 minutes. So, you know, it's Luxembourg. It's not the deepest cycling country out there. But still, Jungle Bob holding off a bunch of Cat 1s to win by 13 minutes. I think this guy's fit off the front. I'd agree. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he might as well just always wear that. They, yeah. they don't even need to give him a normal yeah, team jersey. He's, he's permanently wearing. Ditto for the women's side. The Luxembourg National Championship. Yeah, the same goes Christine for Christine Majerus. Constantly. Bulls Dolman's not getting the kind of exposure they wanted out of her because she's not wearing the team kit. She's wearing mm, the national. True. Yeah. True. So wait, uh, off the back? Um, off the back, I would have to say uh, Team Movistar mm. because Team Movistar did not win the Spanish national championship road race for the first time in a really long time but uh more on that a little bit later from one of you two right yeah i'll i'll give a gorka is off the front mm. for winning the spanish national championship wow. former movistar rider yeah one of my favorite gorkas yeah one of my favorite is okay of the two i'd say he's equally favored with john uh to win that uh as a non-movistar rider not easy they've i think they've won the last like 10 in a row it's usually been Alejandro Valverde, or it's been Alejandro Valverde sort of saying, you know, this time I'm going to give it to somebody else. I'm going to let one of my teammates actually win this race for once, which... Magnanimous. Yeah, he's a he's a really friendly guy, that Alejandro Valverde yeah. sometimes. But yeah. this time, Movistar not able to pull it off. So chapeau to, uh, well, sombrero, I guess, to Borja Izaguirre <laughs> for pulling that, that one that off. That is not... No, it would be the trapeca or whatever that uh, funky cha- hat Chapela, is. Chapela, I think it is. Is that uh, how you say it? Yeah, the thing yeah. they get for the Tour of the Basque Country. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. You have an off the back? Yeah, I guess, uh, man, off the back... Uh, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank, guys. Mm. Oh, man, I don't know. Mm. Who had a poor Nationals performance? Uh, I'm looking at the French National Championship results, not seeing a whole lot of Nasser Bouhani anyway. This is true. And he's, Bouhani. oh, you know, speaking of Nasser Bouhani, he's not even going to the Tour de France, which is an even worse thing. The uh, Cofidis team deciding they're pretty much moving on from Nasser Bouhani, this rider they shelled out a lot of money for. Well, he gets to start his summer vacation a little there earlier. There we go. You know, yeah. the French like their summer vacation. That's a nice thing. All right. So for me, I'm going to say off the back is, uh, I think it was, was it Raymond Sinkeldam or was it Danny Van Poppel who got pushed out of the Sinkeldam. way? Sinkeldam. Yeah. He got pushed offline by Matthew Vanderpool at Dutch Nationals. And Matthew Vanderpool wins Dutch Nationals. Sinkeldam, definitely the beta in this situation. Mm. Definitely not, you know. I mean, at the very least, he should have just come into that finish line swinging and just put Vanderpool in his place. But no, he just rolled over Vanderpool. Let him literally. Vanderpool takes his hand off the bar, pushes him off the line, puts his hand back on the bar, and proceeds to sprint to victory. And that's like, come on, you, you can't let you can't let someone do that to you in your national championships. No. Sinkledom, not having it. Yeah, plus he was like right against the he fence. The, he had the perfect line. Perfect line. That was going to be the winning line. Yeah. And I don't understand, like, uh-huh. is Matthew Vanderpool actually that strong in the upper body? Maybe he like, is. That's a pretty impressive, like, you know, the triceps. I don't, I don't know what that would be, but yeah. yeah to to yeah. me, Matthew Vanderpool has the Chuck Norris thing going where you could just make up ridiculous things. Like Matthew Vanderpool once shot down a German plane by pointing his fingers at it and saying bang, <laughs> that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Matthew Vanderpool That's once him. pushed Sinkledom out of the way by by blowing on it by blowing on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, he's the Dutch national champion now. That's pretty impressive. And he said he might actually like it might cause some 
conflict for him, whether he's actually going to carry on with his plans to be a cross mountain bike guy or whether he might, might want to try the roadside a little more hmm. seriously. Anyway, my off the front, though, is going to break from the road nationals because I just want to say my off the front is uh, American mountain bikers because they're heading over to Europe for the next World Cup, Val de Sol, Italy. I know, Dane, you've been talking with uh, Chris Blevins, multi-talented Mr. Chris Blevins. He's going to be in the magazine coming up soon. And I just today talked to Kate Courtney, who's um, also going to be in the magazine. And both those two riders stand a chance of, I think Blevins has got a podium shot in Val de Sol. Yeah, and, in the U23 race. Yeah, sure. in the U23 yeah. race. And yeah. um, Kate Courtney will be in the elite race. I think she's maybe more of a top 10, top 5 maybe. Podium would be awesome for her. And then, um, of course, Aaron Gwynn on the downhill side, dominating as usual. So American mountain bikers showing up for the World Cup, and I think they got a decent shot. Valdezola is awesome. I covered world championships there in 2008. Frischi's last race, got to interview him, had a road bike, got to ride up all these cool Giro climbs. If anyone ever is looking for a good summertime destination, go check out Valdezola. Pretty cheap, too. Hmm. And before we get out of here, we got to remind you guys that the Velonews Tour de France guide is on newsstands right now. So you got to pick it up at your local Barnes & Noble. It's waiting for you. It's got everything you need, all the stories, all the stage previews, all the rider previews. That's the Fellow News official Tour de France guide, Barnes & Noble, find one in your area, go pick it up today. And while you're streaming that Tour de France, you can just read all of our amazing stories. Reading's the original streaming. Yeah. You know, you just open it up and you switch it on and you're ready to go. Yeah. Stream your brain. Well, we would love <laughs> your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellnews.com. Subscribe to the Bellnews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bellnews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Bellnews podcast is produced by Bellnews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bellnews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Pretty Classic Soul drums. Yeah.